Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. And our sermon passage is from 1 Samuel, chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 1a. So just that first section of chapter 4, verse 1. So again, our scripture reading is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 1a. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. It is about to be read to you. Please understand that this is the Lord speaking to you. This is his revelation of himself that you are able to hear. So please give your full attention to God's word as it is now being read. Matthew 4, verses 12 to 22. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father. And followed him. Now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and reading through chapter 4, verse 1a. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. 
On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by the sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that though your people for a season, for a time, did not have much of your word, yet, O oh Lord, you never fail to give your word to your people. You have never failed, O oh Lord, to reveal yourself to those whom you call according to your purposes. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you have not left us as orphans here in our day today, just as you did not leave Samuel and his family and his people as orphans in his day. You did not abandon them. You have not abandoned us. You have given us your word, and through it you speak. Our gracious God, we pray that we would have ears to hear. We pray for your blessings upon us now as your word is preached. Please, the Lord, bless the one who preaches and the ones who hear. Help us all, O Lord, to hear. May you be glorified, O Lord. May we worship you through the preaching of your word. May you edify us, O Lord, as your word is preached. We Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Now this passage, specifically verse 1, it speaks of a time in, uh, in, in God's people, in the people of Israel, a time when the word of God was rare. It is very difficult for us, if not nigh impossible, to imagine uh, for Christians in the West to imagine a time when the Word of God was rare. With the invention of the printing press and the ability to mass-produce Bibles, most households possess multiple copies of the Word of the Lord. Now, I know that Thanksgiving is officially over, but as an exercise in gratitude, when you get home later today, count how many Bibles you have at your house. And then give thanks to God for the ubiquity of the Word of God in our day. Don't let 
the overwhelming number of Bibles that you possess become something which you take for granted. Let it be a cause for you of thanksgiving. Because in the time of Hannah and Elkanah, in the time of Eli and Samuel, copies of the scriptures were rare. That is, possibly as few as one. And that copy was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, maybe there were some backup copies that were kept just in case that had been made by the time of Samuel. But at any rate, there would have been very, very few copies. And what's more, their Bible in in their day consisted at that time of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and at most Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, perhaps some of the Psalms, though not many of them, and maybe the book of Job, depending on when you date it. Their Bible, their word of God, was limited. The, The canon of Scripture in their day was not complete. They still had ongoing special revelation, but even that in the time of Samuel was rare, as we find out in verse 1. So that means that there were no copies of Bibles laying around in their cars, no children's story Bibles, and because there wasn't a prophet, there was very little in the way of God speaking directly to His people. Think about this. Our little church... If you take all of the individuals of our church and families, uh, collectively we possess more copies of the complete canon of Scripture than the entire nation of Israel possessed of the incomplete canon in Samuel's day. And that is something for which we can and ought to be grateful. We have more copies of the Bible, and what's more, we have the whole thing. It's complete. It is finished. And God continues to speak to us through His Word today. But that situation for Israel was about to change. Though Eli, the high priest of God's people, he was losing his sight both physically and spiritually, God was about to call a man, Samuel, technically a boy, I know, but He was about to call a man to speak the Word of the Lord to His people. The drought was about to be over. The famine was about to be finished. God was going to call a prophet among his people. As we work our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to consider this. God breaks through the corruption and evil of this world to call sinners to himself by giving us his word. God breaks through the corruption and evil of this world to call sinners to himself By giving us His Word. The sermon is divided into three sections, three points. First, the rarity of the Word. Second, the call of the prophet. And third, the piercing prophecy. Again, the rarity of the Word, that's the first point. The second point, the call of the prophet. And the third point, the piercing prophecy. So let's look at the first point of the sermon now, the rarity of the word. As we've already mentioned, the word of the Lord was rare in the days of Eli. Verse 1 says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Eli and his sons had failed Israel as priests. And what's more, not only were they failures, not only were they corrupt, but they had led this entire nation, church, into corruption. 
They preyed upon God's people. They got fat off of what was meant to go to the Lord. And in so doing, through their corruption, they corrupted the people. Now, Eli was not a prophet, so it was not his calling to receive revelation from God and to make it known to Israel. But it is true that the Lord had just spoken through a prophet in last week's passage. That doesn't contradict what verse 1 says. The prophet who came to Eli to tell him of the downfall downfall of Eli and his sons was the exception to the rule. The fact is that when God withholds his word, it is a form of judgment upon his people. Amos chapter 8 says that the Lord tells his people he's going to send send a famine on the land, but not the type in which there is a shortage of food. Instead, it will be a shortage of his word. And he tells them that he is going to do so because of their sin. Amos was a prophet about 400 years after the events described in 1 Samuel. But the principle that is communicated in Amos chapter 8 was already in place in Israel of Eli's day. God did not speak to his people. The word was rare because of their sinfulness. But unfortunately for Israel, unlike the precious gems in our day, the rarity of God's word did not seem to make it more valuable to them. It certainly didn't seem to bother the priestly house of Eli. The word of Yahweh was rare. And as the ESV puts it, there was no frequent vision. Now that phrase can be translated more, more literally, no vision was able to break through. You see, there was a hardness of spiritual hearing and a blindness of spiritual sight through which God's revelation of himself was not easily getting through. God's people had become like red clay soil that has been left fallow for a time and the dirt has become crusted over and toughened implements must be used to break through it. Eli, God's priest, certainly wasn't the implement God would use. Verse 2 says, At that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Now the narrator here, he's speaking of physical blindness on Eli's part, but spiritual blindness is implied here. We've seen it from early on in the book of 1 Samuel. It takes Eli three times before he understands that God is speaking to Samuel in this passage. But Eli had one last act of service to perform. He wouldn't utter a prophecy or an oracle. Instead, he would prompt Samuel to listen to to God's word of revelation in which God would describe the downfall of Eli's house. Verse 3 tells us that the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh where the Ark of the Covenant was. In Exodus chapter 27 verse 21, speaking of the lamp of God, we read, In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. And so the events that are described in chapter 3 take place in the overnight hours before the lamp was extinguished at dawn. Even though the lamp is to be tended by Aaron and his sons, Eli and his sons in their day should be the ones tending it. But they're not. It's Samuel who is tending the lamp, which places him in close proximity to the Ark of the Covenant. The call of the prophet, point number two. It is in the still of the night when Samuel was sleeping that Yahweh called Samuel. We aren't told the content of God's call to Samuel. We aren't told what he says. 
God says until verse 10. In verse 4, all we get is Samuel's response. Here I am. And then we read that he ran to the room where Eli was. The voice was so real and apparently so human sounding that Samuel naturally thought that it was Eli who was calling to him. But Eli tells him in verse 5 that he didn't call Samuel and then he instructs the boy to go and to lay back down. In verse 6, Samuel call, Yahweh calls to Samuel again. And a similar course of events to the previous time takes place. He rushes to Eli, and Eli tells him once again to, to, to go back and lie down. In verse 7, we get an important piece of information. This is somewhat of a, a theological aside here in verse 7. It helps to explain Samuel's misunderstanding of the events taking place. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, there are different takes on what verse 7 is saying here. It may simply mean that because Samuel hasn't had any personal experience with Yahweh, he's never heard him speak, so he doesn't know his voice. And so he assumes that it must be Eli speaking to him. It could also indicate that Samuel hasn't been properly trained. He hasn't been properly catechized by the high priest and his sons. And so that he doesn't uh, know anything about Yahweh. He doesn't know uh, how Yahweh would conduct himself, how Yahweh would, would go about issuing a call. Well, at the very least, verse 7 means these things, but I think it means even more. Samuel doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know him in a saving way. Now, the other time that this verse is used, this phrase is used, it's used of Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And there it's used in, in the negative. They did not know the Lord. They did these things because they did not know the Lord. It, it's indicative of this state that these two men were in, these priests of uh, the tabernacle of the Lord. They did not know that. It was used there pejoratively. Here, it's not so much a pejorative, but it speaks about who Samuel is. Samuel doesn't know Yahweh in a saving way. He's never heard God's effectual call. At least not until now. And if that's the case, then God's call to Samuel in this chapter is not merely a call to be God's prophet. It's not merely a call for him to become God's mouthpiece. It is a call of God unto salvation for Samuel. He is calling Samuel out of sin and darkness. He is calling Samuel into the glorious kingdom of his light. One commentator puts it this way, in spite of all the ritual competence and knowledge which he has acquired, he has no knowledge of God. The knowledge of God, says chapter 3, is something you have only if God himself divulges it to you. The knowledge of God, says chapter 3, is something you have only if God himself divulges it to you. That is what is happening to Samuel in our passage. And as Dale Ralph Davis says about verse 7 in his commentary, this statement explains it does not blame. This isn't an indictment of Samuel. And it isn't so much an indictment of Eli. As Jesus in John chapter 6 verse 44 puts it, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In one sense, Samuel's experience in the tabernacle isn't too different from our covenant youth in our church today. Just as Samuel received circumcision as the sign of his entrance into the people of God, into the household of God, so our covenant children have received baptism. 
That doesn't mean that they're saved. It doesn't mean that they're born again. It just means that they are members of the visible church. They have certain rights and privileges of membership in the visible church, one of which is the regular opportunity to hear the gospel. Our church's hope is that our covenant children will, like Samuel, at some point, hear the voice of the Lord calling them to repentance for their sins and faith in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's that's the hope of every parent in this church. That our children will come to know the Lord. Now, Now Samuel knew how to make sure that the lamp of God which stood beside the Ark of the Covenant didn't go out overnight. Our children... They know how to gather up the communion cups after the Lord's Supper. They know how to move tables and stack up chairs. But it wasn't until Samuel heard God's voice speaking to him that he understood what the Ark of the Covenant truly meant. And it isn't until our children hear God speaking to them through the public reading and the preaching of God's Word that they understand what the wine in those tiny little thimble cups truly represent. For Samuel, the word of God was being revealed to him as he lay on the floor beside the ark. And though the word of the Lord had been rare in those days, though visions to God's people hadn't broken through in some time, that was all in the process of changing. God was about to do a mighty work. Verse 8 tells us that Yahweh called to Samuel a third time. The hard soil of his soul is being broken open. The scales are beginning to come off his eyes. But the third time here is not quite the charm. He goes once again to Eli, upon whom it finally dawns that it might just be Yahweh who's calling to Samuel. And he tells Samuel to go back and lie down again. And he says, if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Verse 9 says that Samuel went back and he lay down in his place. He did just what... Eli said for the third time. In verse 10, Yahweh doesn't merely call out to Samuel. We read in verse 10, And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. God called Samuel's name twice. Apparently this was what God had been doing all along. The difference This time, the fourth time, is that God is standing there in person. This is a theophany. And in in our understanding, we we don't know for sure, but we assume that this would be the second person of the Trinity who's standing there before Samuel, the Son of God, pre-incarnate. There is no mention exactly of what Samuel saw as God stood there before him. I think it's safe to say that his field of vision was not filled with a scene of the angelic host the way that Isaiah's was when he was called in Isaiah chapter 6. It wasn't remarkable enough even for the author of the book of 1 Samuel to take note of the scene, the the, the visual uh, nature of things. Most likely Yahweh's call to Samuel was less like Isaiah's and less like Ezekiel's and more like Christ's calls to his disciples in the Gospels. Jesus' encounters with his disciples were, for the most part, ordinary. There were some extraordinary examples. When he calls Philip, when he calls Nathaniel. And so, in those cases, he displayed divine knowledge that no mere human could have. But the accounts that we read uh, from Matthew of Christ's calls to Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were probably along the lines of what Samuel experienced. 
In all of these instances, it was Yahweh calling. So in truth, there was nothing ordinary about them. God was breaking through into this sin-filled world with his living and active word, calling his people to follow him. Though the hearts of God's people had grown hard, though the high priest and his sons had grown corrupt, though God had judged his people through the scarcity of his word, now God was showing his steadfast love by calling this boy to faith. And through him, God was going to do many mighty works. Finally, we've arrived at the third point of the sermon, the piercing prophecy. The first prophecy that Samuel, that God gives to Samuel is a real zinger. And it also serves as a test for Samuel to prove whether he's got the metal to serve as the prophet of the Lord. And we don't know whether Samuel was privy to the unnamed prophet's words in chapter 2, but God tells Samuel in verses 11 and 12 of our passage, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Samuel, along with the rest of Israel, might not have known what the prophet said in chapter 2, but that won't last much longer. Everyone is going to know what the Lord said to Samuel. And God's words to Samuel in verses 11 to 14 make it clear to Samuel that what is about to happen to Eli and to his sons is judgment for their sins, for Hophni's and Phinehas' blasphemy against God, and for Eli's looking on and doing nothing to stop them. God says in verse 14, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This is a damning judgment upon Eli and his sons and upon his household. As Davis puts it in his commentary, they have placed themselves beyond forgiveness. In other words... Eli and his sons have committed the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No atonement will be made for their sins forever. Our understanding of this would be this, that Eli and his sons, as as we read in chapter 2, they did not know the Lord. They didn't know Him though they were serving as priests and as the high priest in his tabernacle. They did not have a saving faith. And they were committing the sin. They had committed the sin beyond which they could return. The test for Samuel is whether or not he's going to convey this piercing prophecy, these difficult words to his mentor, Eli. Verse 15 makes it clear that Samuel knows that this is what he has to do. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called to Samuel, and in verse 17 puts him under a curse if he does not tell Eli everything that God told him. Even so, Samuel could have hedged. Imagine yourself in Samuel's position. Samuel could have hemmed and hawed. He could have tried to be nice. He could have tried to put it in in the most kind and, and benign way possible. But he doesn't do those things. Verse 18 says that Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. 
Now, there's no elaboration in verse 18, but we can assume that Samuel told Eli everything in a straightforward, straightforward manner without embellishment or adornment. He just laid it out, exactly what he heard from the Lord. And all Eli can say in response is, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli has had the first prophecy given in chapter 2 confirmed. And he also knows that Samuel 2 is now a prophet. As Hebrews 4 says, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit. For some, as with Eli, the wound of God's word proves to be the kiss of death. But for others, like Samuel, it is God's breath of life. You see that played out in this chapter. God's word brought Samuel to life, but his word meant death for Eli and his sons. The absence of God's word, God withholding it, is a form of judgment. But the presence of his word is judgment as well for some. And at the same time, blessing for others. And this would prove to be the case for Samuel and for all of the prophets who followed after Samuel. Their words would be life-giving for some and judgment for others. Verses 19 to 21 say that Samuel grew up and the Lord was with him and God let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. That is, they were all effective. All that he said would come true because Samuel's words as a prophet were from God. He wasn't making them up. They all would be fulfilled. And so verses 19 to 21 make it clear that the effectiveness of Samuel's words as a prophet was the, re- the, the direct result of God's work in Samuel. Samuel grew because the Lord was with him. God established him or appointed him as a prophet, and everybody knew it. And the Lord gave to Samuel revelation. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment on sin is severe. If you do not know the Lord, His punishment, His judgment on you will be no less severe than His judgment was on the household of Eli. God caused a famine of the Word of God in Israel because of the corruption that had spread from the priesthood to the people. He pronounced harsh judgment on the house of Eli, bringing their sinfulness to a halt. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ... And if you refuse to know Him, then you can know with certainty that His judgment upon you will be severe. You are rejecting the living and true God. But in pronouncing that judgment upon Eli and upon his house, God also resumed the giving of His Word. He established a prophet who would become the anointer of kings. As verse 21 says, The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. But it wasn't confined to Shiloh. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1a tells us, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. He was a prophet not just for Shiloh, not just for that one little mountaintop, not for that one little location. He was a prophet for all of Israel. He was the prototypical prophet. He was the prophet after whom all of the other prophets flowed. 
In one word from Yahweh, Eli was condemned. And Samuel was called. Judgment for one and salvation for another. If you don't know Christ, don't let this word today be judgment to you. Hear the call of the Lord. Hear His call. All that is required of you is to respond in faith. To trust that what you are hearing is the the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. We live in a time and a place where the word of God is plenteous. Especially at this time of year. It's, It's almost impossible to turn on the radio and not hear Christmas songs that are quoting scripture. Most of the time sung by someone who doesn't even believe any of it. They're just doing it for the bank. They're just doing it for the royalties. They just want to have an annuity that rolls in every year because the radio stations have picked up their Christmas song. But that's okay. Because if they are quoting Scripture, they are quoting the Lord unwittingly. The same way that Eli did. The same way that Hophni and Phinehas did. And so even in those cases, it is God's word. If God could use Eli for the purpose of raising up his prophet Samuel, then God can use anything, even unbelievers singing Christmas songs for his glory and his people's good. But it's even better than that. God has not relegated his word to the radio waves for the occasional pagan to sing it. For a, for a, a time of the year now stretching from one month into two and now three, it seems, where these songs are on the radio. He has not confined it to that. His word is not rare, brothers and sisters, in this day. It is everywhere. Your challenge is not to take it for granted. Not to become so hardened to his word that you no longer hear it. Some will stand condemned forever by the word that they refuse to hear. But others will be called by God's word to eternal salvation. Trust in this. Know this. Believe this. God will call his children to our Savior. And he will raise us up on the last day. He will draw us to his son. If we truly belong to him. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that just as you called Samuel to yourself, just as you called him to be a prophet, you've called us. You've called your people. And though your means of doing so are somewhat different in this day than they were in Samuel's, It is no less effective because your spirit is the one doing the calling. We thank you, O Lord, that you have appointed men to proclaim the good news. But we thank you that there are times extraordinary when the good news comes out of the mouths of pagans who don't even believe what they're singing. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to hear you. We pray that you would help us to love your word. We pray that you would help us not to take it for granted. We pray that the the prevalence of your word, the ubiquity of your word, would not cause us to denigrate it, to think less of it, to think of it less important than it truly is. 
Lord, help us to love your word and cause us by your spirit to hear it, to heed it. Use it in our lives, O Lord, to glorify your holy name. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.